Laura Barrera, and welcome to the 11th episode of the Notesville Farmer podcast series. Today's program, Turning a Profit and Improving the Health of Thin Abused Piedmont Soils, is being brought to you by Copperhead Ag. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, currently available on iTunes, the Google Play Store, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to get an alert when upcoming episodes are released. If you have another app you use for listening to podcasts, let us know and we'll make an effort to get it listed there as well. Thanks to Copperhead Egg, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spiked Closing Wheel, for sponsoring today's episode. Finally, there is one closing wheel for all of your acres. The Furrow Cruiser has a unique combination of aggressiveness and control that allows it to win yield trials in all conditions. These wheels are the real deal. They will not plug up on you, and the poly material they are made from stands up to heavy abuse. In fact, it's so strong they give it a lifetime guarantee against breakage. If you want to finally have all your furrows closed right, get the most even emergence out of your crop, and have a closing wheel that has proven to pay for itself in the first season, then visit copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how these wheels are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code podcast at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code podcast at copperheadag.com. When Jim Howard started his no-till operation, he aimed to model himself after other successful farmers. And the one trait he noticed among those who were successful is they did the basics right all the time. In this presentation from the 2016 National No-Tillage Conference, Jim, who no-tills 450 acres with his son Branson in the Piedmont region of North Carolina, will talk about the basics to his farm that have led to a profitable no-till operation even on soils that have been abused from centuries of erosion and tillage. Before we get into the presentation, I'd like to mention that Jim will refer to some slides from the PowerPoint presentation he shared at the conference. If you would like to view those slides, visit bit.ly slash Jim Howard podcast. That's bit.ly slash Jim Howard podcast, all lowercase. In today's No Till Farmer podcast, brought to you by Copperhead Ag, we welcome Jim to share the lessons he's learned from no-tilling corn, soybeans, and wheat in Mooresville, North Carolina. This deal, uh, I got an email from, from Daryl and back in the summer and he asked me if I'd call him and I called him and he asked me if I'd ever, ever spoke about the farm and I said well no he said well would you and yeah, I was kind of flattered I was kind of like the little little fat boy got to go to the prom with the with the head cheerleader you know <laughs> but I've been scared of it ever since I'd no lie I've had nightmares because you know I do take it serious that you guys have spent your money and you drove we drove 500 miles to come here and and I want to have something worthwhile to say so I want to do a few slides about kind of the overview of the farm then, then I'm going to tell my story because I think I don't do anything that impressive on the farm but I think the reason that I've done it in the process I've come to to do it is is in, is uh, maybe more important than what we do. Um, but I'll get into that in a second. So we'll start out here. This is our farm, Little Oaks Farms LLC. The reason it's at Little Oaks Farms because my dad's farm was Big Oaks Farm. And the neighbors started saying it was kind of as a joke. They started calling me Little Oaks. And uh, my accountant said, we need to be a LLC, a corporation or something, I had to come up with a name and I'm not very creative, so that's, that's what we ended up with. We farm about 450 acres, uh, 200 acres of corn. We grow about 125 acres of full season beans. We grow about 125 acres of wheat a year. Uh, we double crop all the wheat acres. My son Branson, who's sitting right here, trying for me not to embarrass him, uh, he grows strawberries, cantaloupes, and sweet corn. So, um, 
I love the land. I'm a member of the, I'm a supervisor on the Iredell County Soil and Water Conservation District. I'm a member of the Farm Bureau. So I, I do love the land. I love, that's the only job I've ever wanted to do. So, but we're not 100% no-till. There is three quarters of an acre of tillage. And this is our strawberry patch. And, and I, it really hurts my soul to do that. But there are some interesting things that went on in the strawberry patch. You know, the first thing you do is everything that we tell you not to do here, you do. You just beat the snot out of the soil. You beat it into submission. You try to get it just as loose and small particles as you can so you can drag it up in a pile and make these rows. And uh, so we had a neighbor, a good neighbor, and he's got one of these tillage tool to go behind the tractor. It's about a six foot. And he said, what y'all needs this tillage tool? You know, come down here, this rotavator. So he comes out here and he rotivates the ground this way and he rotivates the ground that way. And we go out there with our better and the ground had compacted about that deep so hard after two passes that you could not pull it up in a pile. So we had to go back in there and hit it one more time with a big Taylor way hair. So to try to redeem ourselves, as soon as we do that, we do come in and sow ryegrass because when you cover half the land up with plastic, the you know, you get a two-inch rain, it's four inches in the center. And it's, it's, it's sort, of a, sort of a big uh, uh, erosion issue, so we, we do try to do that. And then we'll spray that down uh, in the spring um, to, before picking time. But my journey, I have a story, and it starts in 1919. And, then, and no, I wasn't born in 1919, but my dad was. My dad was born in 1919. His daddy was a barber. My grandfather was a uh, farmer. Both great-grandfathers were farmers. And um, their farms were covered up by Lake Norman, you know, right there. It's part of the Catawba River chain. So my grandfather was off the farm, but my dad all ha always had a love for the land. So he... Uh, he grew up, of course, being in 1919, he grew up through the Depression. And anybody that has parents that grew up through the Depression, that, that left a big mark. You know, what you do and how you function, you know, they know what poverty is. They have been broke, you know. And uh, then my dad, the only mistake that I ever knew he made, he went to Carolina for three years. So, uh, but his third year at Carolina, and that's, that's North Carolina. I know you're from South Carolina. That's a different. But anyhow. The, and the third year, you know, World War II was going on, and, and uh, he realized that he was fixing to get drafted. So he had volunteered for the Army Air Corps. And uh, he was a, uh, he, he flew transport planes. They would fly pl good planes across the Atlantic or out in the Pacific or into uh, North Africa and they'd bring up the shot up planes back and he was a navigator and he did all that and he, he got enough of that because to my knowledge after he got out of the army he never flew on another plane. So uh, one of the things that I have in my position that, that is really humbling to me is I've got a deed where my dad bought our farm while he was in service uh, and he put in my grandfather's name. And my, I got the deed where my grandfather sold the farm back to him for a dollar when he came home for service. So that, that's always been humbling. Well, my dad was a late bloomer. He didn't get married till he was almost 40. So he was in his mid-40s when yours truly was born. And when I got out of North Carolina State in 1981, he'd already retired. He'd pretty much cut, kicked it up in neutral. And uh, he was in uh, capital preservation mode so he did help me get started and when I got out of school you know uh, I got into swine production when I was down at state and I, I graduated from went walked the stage about two o'clock in the afternoon five o'clock in the afternoon I had a load of bread gilts going back home because I was in the hog business you know and I sold feeder pigs uh, on a small scale and uh, after about three years, I was working on a dairy farm. I was helping Dad with his beef cows, and I was working on the feed, uh, raising these feeder pigs. And uh, I got to this, I got to this crossroad in life. And and the crossroad was, I couldn't work part time farming, and I couldn't work part time on the dairy, so I had to do something. So I was muddling along, muddling along. What am I going to do? 
And this guy, his name was Fred Myers. He was a feed salesman. He came up and offered me a job. He said, Jim, you know, you got talents. You need to do this. You need to come help work for me and sell this feed, and you're going to be great, and you're going to make all this money. And I worked for Fred for five, five years and never made as much as he said I was going to start out making. But I've been in the feed business for 32 years, and, and I work for a good company now called Star Milling. Uh, it's a local-owned company, uh, and uh, they were blessed with a bunch of business. And uh, the dairy business that I worked with was, was basically uh, kind of the gravy, so there wasn't a lot of pressure on me. And my, my focus came more to helping farmers rather than selling feed because the best way to sell something is make somebody money with your deal. So during this presentation, you're going to hear probably more about cows than, than you want to, but actually a business is a business, whether you're running a grocery store or a garage or, or a dairy, or they're, they're similar things. And, and in my uh, experience, there has been a a lot of dairies that I've seen be extremely profitable. And there's a lot of dairies that have been extremely not profitable. And the profitable dairies have one th have a whole set of things in common and the ones that generally fail. You know, there's some legitimately bad things that happen to people that are beyond your control that uh, you can't do anything about and, and, and cause people to struggle. But a lot of them have the characteristics that they, they cause themselves to fail. So in my farming operation, as I started to crank up the grain operation, renting land and, and whatnot, uh, I tried to model myself after the successful people. And generally, the, the number one trait on the successful people uh, is they did the basics right all the time. And they built success upon success upon success by doing the basics right. You know, I used to have a saying in, in, in my farming is good crops beget good crops. Well, I hadn't figured out cover cropping yet, but if you had a bad crop and I lost my residue, uh, you know, the next crop struggled because, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't have it. But how I got started into no-till, of course, when I got out of school, in the early 80s, there was no Roundup Ready, nothing, or, you know, and Johnson grass is a, was a big problem in our area. And everybody had to work the ground, and uh, we'd incorporate Sutan or Raticane and, you know, uh, on open cab tractors. And the Harris brothers that I work for, you'll hear their names several times here. But uh, Gene would be on the sprayer, and me and Charlie would be behind on the tractors, and we were just getting covered up with atrazine, sutan, and stuff, and, you know. So I came along, and, and one of my dairy customers, his name was David Knox, and uh, they had started no-tilling. And I said, no-tilling? What, what's up with this? Why are you no-tilling? He said, well, this Dr. George Naderman had done a so many year study uh, and no-till was the most profitable system. And at the end of the day, we're out here to make a dollar. I mean, I want to I be a steward of the land. I want to look after what God's gave me. I want to do what's right, but, but we have to make a profit to survive. And I mean, so my company helped sponsor. They, had, they sold liquid fertilizer at that time. Uh, uh, no-till field day where they presented all this study from Dr. George Naderman, his long deal and they had uh, Carlos Cravetta who was from Brazil and they had Jim Casella and had John Bradley you know and these are like in the early 90s the rock stars of the of the and it was like I've been saved I understand all the stuff that we've been doing wrong we, we I understand so I one that's it amen we're we're, we're uh so we're, we're heading down that path. So I want to start kind of in my presentation actually now, and, and this is the thing. The smartest people I know tend to agree with me. <laughs> and, and, you know, that's kind of arrogant, but you are not at the National Tillage Conference. You're at the National No-Tillage Conference. 
Okay, so we're all like-minded people, and we tend to agree with it. We not, not, not agree with the methods we all use, but we agree that non-disturbance of the soil is the best way to grow a crop. And we have learned about that, so, and we're here to learn. So hopefully that's, that's that. All right, so one of the things that in my, my dealings as a feed salesman, I've been asked to represent a lot of different products. And through the years, I cannot tell you all the products that have come and gone and the products that were supposed to do this that didn't do that or they didn't do it well enough to pay for themselves. So I've kind of come to the mindset is, and you know, get the basics right, do it right, you don't need all this stuff. And so I come to, uh, you know, I want, I want to, share that with you. So this is research that was done by Dr. Jim Dunphy, who is our extension soybean specialist, 27 sites over eight years. And you can see North Carolina doesn't have really, really good beans, but that's, that's sort of reality that uh, return on investment for applying a fungicide at the best is $2.70. This includes no application cost. So year in, year out, it's questionable whether spraying a fungicide. Me being conservative and tight, that's right up my alley. Less to do, less money to spend. Okay, 36 trials, uh, you know, on seed treatment, a tenth of a bushel. You know, it's questionable in North Carolina that, uh, that, that seed treatments pay all the time, although I, I tend to do use seed treatments uh, then I really went to a field day this year and uh, they were doing this county agent was doing a return on investment study and this was the 2014 study and this was right in my wheelhouse you know everybody wants to prove their point what they believe the check was the third most profitable way to farm doing nothing I said all right so you are the first people to see this information because I had to hound Dr. Dunphy to get this put together. Well, this is the slide he sent me. And I went, damn, that ain't what I want to see. <laughs> so, you know, because the check's down towards the bottom, you know, it's like $40 less profitable than the BioForge. And so I really... I started not to put it in there because we all have an agenda and I said no that's the truth that's what they found out this is a two year study that's the average two years so I decided to bore down in this thing and see actually what happened in 14 that didn't that didn't happen in 15 well first off I went to this field day and um, it was on a guy's farm in Surrey County which is right at the edge of Virginia really good land the guy contracts hogs, he's got 8,000 sows. So he's got lots of manure. Also, uh, Wayne Poultry has chicken operations. I think they got a bunch of chicken houses, but fertility is not an issue in Surrey County. So, uh, and they had a perfect season. My end of the state, it was a bad drought. Worst drought I've ever had to endure. But they had a pretty good season. So when I actually bored down into it, in 2014, they did, the average was 58 bushels, which is still good beans, but they're not great beans, but they're good beans. This year, the whole plot averaged almost 71. So higher management works with higher yields. If you've got more yield potential to do that, uh, do it. So. I kind of summarized it myself that the check was the third most profitable in 2014. Bio4GST, don't even know what it is, it's seat treatment. But both years it's been like next to the top and it only costs like a buck and a half. I'm probably going to use it this year. Was more profitable than a check. Priaxor, both years was the rock star. It's a fungicide. I don't, I don't know the chemistry of it, but, but it was. But the least profitable both years was additional fertilizer. Okay, North Carolina NCDA has their own soil testing lab, and they operate on the theory of the last crop grown. 
So you get uh, all your numbers out there and it's not what you normally people see, but it'll have an index. And if the index is 50, it's sufficient to grow a crop, okay? So basically, if the fertilizer is there, adding extra fertilizer is the least profitable thing to do. So, I mean, I think we all pretty much know that, but some people are pretty aggressive. I know the Harris's that I work for, when they were good farmers, and uh, they always said the manure was for the land, the fertilizer's for the crop. And they leased me their farm now, and I think that's a good thing for me because we, we got a lot. So I want to talk about our soil a little bit, and I'm really kind of proud of this picture. Uh, this is on our home farm, uh, and actually what this is is where the row marker kicked up a, a bunch of stuff as we were turning the corner. And if you'll look, there's... I don't know, one, two, three, there's about five earthworms, there's all kinds of worms, there's big old hole and stuff. And that soil, when I started farming it, my dad, when he fertilized, he fertilized by his checkbook. You know, he'd buy so much fertilizer and this was the furthest field from the house and this one didn't get anything generally. Because when I started farming it, the soil index was like in below, it was single digits. So. It's come a long way. It's my little pet project bottom. I, it's covered by trees. There's nobody can see it. I do stupid stuff down there. I, I grew 95-day corn because, you know, no-till conference, we want to get our cover crops in. And one of our problems with cover crops is we can't get them in in a timely fashion to do what I want to do. I can't get these big blends that everybody talks about. And I can't get them because I don't have time. So I was going to grow 95-day corn. Well, my seedman... He said, don't do it. I said, why? He said, it won't work. I said, why won't it work? He says, I don't know. It just won't work. Okay. So I said, well, amen. amen. <laughs> so he sold me three bags of this 95-day corn, and I planted it, and guess what? It don't work. <laughs> you know, it looked like popcorn. Now, I thought it was really, really bad, but it was about 60 bushels an acre less than what we normally grow, so we checked that off. Uh, I didn't have to repeat that one to figure out that that was not the thing. So everybody out here in, in the Midwest and, you know, in the Plains and all, they talk about they go to the fence row and take the soil sample. I don't have a fence row. You know, we don't have fence rows. So I go in the woods. I go in the woods beside these big old oak trees. We got these old oak trees. The thing's probably... 200 years old, and I take soil sample. So I figure that's the way God made our land. I figure that's the way it is. So, you know, the natural pH, never had a drop of lime on it. It's 5.1. Phosphorus is 24 pounds available phosphorus per acre, which A&L lab rates as low. We got a medium level of 284 pounds of potash. We're low in calcium. We're high in magnesium. And our CECs are terrible. All right, my friend back there, Ken Nixon, he said, Jim, what kind of soils are you dealing with down there? And I said, well, what are your CECs? I think y'all are like 30, right? And I said, I said, well, we have clay, clay loam soils. And he said, well, what's your CEC? I said, well, they're a good, good field would be 12. He said, I don't see how clay can be, have a, he said, how do you do that? I said, well, you got to grow 100 years of cotton. That's but no, that's just the way it is. It's just the soil. This is a Lloyd soil series. And Lloyd's can be a Lloyd clay, Lloyd clay loam, or Lloyd loam. Ours are clays and clay loams. His cousin Cecil, we have a lot of it, which is the same. The parent material from the on the Lloyd's and Cecil's are, are granite rock. So if you get down in there far enough, there's granite rock, big old granite rock. These people from Davidson County, they know granite rock. So, and I, I learned something else uh, as I was doing this. There, just in the county below me, which is Cabarrus County, uh, that's where the Charlotte Motor Speedway is, if y'all are any race fans. They, they really, I didn't think anybody in Cabarrus County knew how to farm. You know, it was, they always had terrible crops. But they've got a different soil type. They, theirs was made from this mafic rock. So it's not really their fault. It's just the hand that they were dealt. So, anyhow, we got a little bit of that, but not much. 
So here's our cover crops. And this is what we do the most of is rye. And it's because of our crop rotation and it's in cereal rye. Now this is just before where actually Branson's out there spraying somewhere. Uh, this rye, cereal rye, is around the end of uh, April. It's about head high to me. So it, it's tall. It's tall. So the first time I came to a no-till conference was in Des Moines, Iowa. And, and Brian Moore and I came out there, and, and Dwayne Beck was the first speaker. And I, I kind of like people that lay it on the line and tell it how it is and, and you know, just are plain. You know, call a, a spade a spade. So he said cover crop seed should be cheap and readily available. You know, that's another problem with these big high-dollar blends because you can spend 40 or $50 an acre on just cover crop seed plus putting it in the ground, and we've got to maintain a, a return on investment. So that's one of our issues that we're trying to do cover crop seed cheap. Okay, Gabe Brown spoke. He said, what's your resource concern? Well, on our soil series, the slopes are from 2 to 10% and can be as high as 50% slopes. So and in a long-term no-till situation, when the soil mellows out, we get erosion. We get erosion. I mean, you know, for years until the ground loosened up, no, we didn't get erosion. But we get erosion, and it's a problem. We got to deal with it. So one of my resource concerns is holding the ground because we get a lot of rain in, in the winter, and we hold the ground in with, with our cover crop. Also, uh, recycling nutrients. You know, we don't use probably all the nutrients we put out there, so I want to suck them up and store them up and overhead. I'm going to run out of ideas, so I'm actually going to have to look at my notes here. Uh, I want to have live roots to feed the soil biology as much of the year. And I also want to have residue to protect the, protect the land. And, and, you know, it gets hot and sunny in, in our part of the country, and we want to shade that ground. So these are the cover crops that we grow, predominantly rye. We grow our own rye seed. You know, uh, I bought a pallet of seed, you know, VNS seed to, to sow for a seed patch. I think it's a brazy, but I don't know if that's, it's, it's in a brown bag, so I think it's okay. And uh, we make about 40 bushels, uh, put 100 pounds of lime, two bags of seed, that had 120 pounds of potash. We grow rye and radishes. I like radishes. Radishes are like cocaine for an earthworm. You know, if you go out there and you dig up a radish, there'll be four or five worms hanging all over it. And I really, I guess my nose is bad, but everybody used to talk about it. They stink, they stink. But I've never really found them that offensive. And then we'll use rye and crimson clover, and then we'll use rye, crimson clover, and radishes, and then we'll use whatever we got. Whatever we got. So, you know, I hire all my grain hauled, and my truck drivers, they'll come in here, and they'll load their trucks, overload, you'll say, I've got 10,000 bushels to haul. They'll overload nine trucks, and well, that ain't enough to make a load out. I don't know what you know. What you want to haul that down there? And so, if we got a hundred bushels that we can't get on a truck, we'll we'll sow wheat, you know, because it's cheap. Might not be the best. Doesn't have the root structure, but it will grow. Will have roots. It will protect the soil. So we use it. We do it a lot of different ways. That's my first attempt at sowing radishes. It's high tech. Got an electric spreader on my wife's side by side. I got my GPS up in there. Check that out. And, uh, you know, you can't, you, you jump out and you open up the little thing and you just hit the gas and drive as fast as you can and you run on a seat. It worked. It worked. But I didn't know anything about radishes because we had a cold December that year and all the dadgum radishes died and it was bare dirt. So I actually went out there in January and, and re-sowed some, some more cover. So radishes by themselves is no bueno. We, you know, this is our planter. And uh, this, we got a Kinsey planter with inner plants. And we, you know, we'll throw rye in that thing. We'll throw just whatever and, and go plant. We'll just get her done. 
This is the gold standard for tight wad cover cropping. You know, I got my little gravity wagon I bought at auction for for 600 bucks, and I got my shoot drill fill, and we'll, you can run the rye up in there. Don't even have to clean it, and you and it works really good when uh, if you run the rye up in the tender with a auger, we'll just dump the bags of radishes or crimson or whatever in there. And it's pretty pretty much mixed and goes out there. And and that's this year. That's the stand. I mean, you can't you, you can't get it no better than that. I mean, you got a 12-year-old tractor with a 20-year-old spreader that your daddy bought for $800 and, you know, it doesn't get any cheaper or better. We also drill it. That's a bad picture, but that's the only picture I had us drilling. And, and I want you to pay attention to this, what's going on here. Uh, it's Branson's drilling. This is after double crop beans. It's probably after Thanksgiving or around Thanksgiving. We had some pretty good wheat on that ground, the, spread the straw. You know, we planted our beans. We had some pretty good beans, and uh, now we're doing it. But you can see all the residue that's left because of the straw was real high carbon nitrogen and didn't break down. So if you'll, this is this year, and that's Branson. He's planting. Uh, he's planting right there, and that's, that's cereal rye. That's what cereal rye looks like the 1st of April. That picture a while ago, this head is my head high. That's what it looks like at the end of April because it, it'll really grow. So, and that is what was left after the corn. Now, I have to say we had a bad drought, and that piece of corn made less than 20 bushels an acre. That was bad. So there wasn't a lot of corn residue, but it's broke down the... It's broke down the wheat from the year before, the soybeans, the rye that was there, and all. And the, uh, I'm going to go to our extension agent, Teresa Herman. She's doing a cover crop trial, so she comes out here and takes soil samples to, uh, to just measure organic matter because that's what she's looking at. I think she's going to get her feelings hurt on this deal because... That's what it is, four, seven, four, five, four, six, four, eight, and four, eight. They actually had one test that was six, oh. So naturally, the way that God made the world, we're less than 3%, we're two, five, or whatever. But through continuous cover crops and no-till, we've got this up, and, and Daddy gave me a head start that that was a hay field. It was in fescue for a good while, and I killed the fescue and started planting it. So that's, that's it. We'll rejoin Jim in a minute, but I wanted to take a moment to again thank our sponsor, Copperhead Ag, makers of the Furrow Cruiser Spike Closing Wheel for today's episode. The guys at Copperhead are wondering if you're still running the standard rubber tire or cast iron closing wheels on your planter. The rubber tire and cast closer that come standard on most planters have been beaten consistently by the Furrow Cruiser, no matter what tillage practices or soil type they have been tested in. If you are using one of these outdated systems, then you are likely losing yield. Do yourself a favor and stop by copperheadag.com today. You can check out their research page to see for yourself how furrow cruisers are yielding higher than other closing systems and order a set of furrow cruisers right there. Enter the code podcast at checkout and you'll get a better deal on us. That's special code podcast at copperheadag.com. And before we return to the program, I wanted to let you know about the coffee table book we're producing this spring on the history of no-till. Titled From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming, this book will feature more than 200 pages of personal stories on how no-till changed the lives of farmers and their families. Hundreds of full-color images, including some that have never before been published, the evolution of no-till equipment, and much more. For more information or to pre-order the book, visit notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. That's notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. Now let's hear more from Jim on his crop rotations and his program for no-till corn. There are no mistakes in agriculture, only test plots. Ken Nixon. 
Y'all don't know this, but I'm an honorary Canadian when I'm at the No-Till Conference because Ken and I and Terry stayed at the first, same hotel the first year I went, and we became friends. And uh, they've come down to see me, and I've gone to see them. And, and they're actually, they help me a lot. So I don't know if you can see what this is. This is a patch of crappy corn this year. And this right here is a spot that we didn't get sprayed. I don't know what we did. We probably cut off one section of the boom and we turned around and it was a spot not worth going back to get. But that rye grew up all year. And, and if the little green stuff you see in there is some little piddly, spindly corn stalks, but if you could, if the picture was better, there's like pigweed, palmer amaranth all around the edge. So that had no fertilizer, it had no herbicide had no nothing and other than the corn that went through there with the row cleaners and maybe a stray pigweed it's clean so maybe maybe i'm wasting some money on some herbicides too but uh anyhow i thought that was interesting i wanted to share that with you now this thing here has changed the way we farm in north carolina uh, and for those that don't know, that's Palmer Amaranth. And that's on the side of a road. I stopped on the side of the road and took a picture of that. You know, I don't know if a bird ate the seed and it came over there and landed on the guardrail, but those things, you cannot pull them up if they are over a foot tall. They'll have a tree trunk. They're serious. Now, Everybody takes pictures of their neighbor's fields and say, well, this is my neighbor's field. This is not my, this is not my field. <laughs> but, but this is actually the cousin of one of the guys in here. And I go to church with the guy and I told him I was going to use this picture. So if you don't mess around with Palmer Amaranth, that's what happens. You pull your combine out to the edge of the field and it just about, you know, he, he combined barley and he pulled it out there to the edge of the field and he left it in the big shed and he went back behind it and planted milo and it's just about to get taken. So it's it's a it's bad. It's serious. And we had to Palmer amaranth, it is a it is a pigweed. Uh I think it's kin to water hemp. It came in our area from eastern North Carolina. And, you know, in eastern North Carolina, they grow, at that time, they grew a bunch of cotton, 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 cotton. And uh, they used Roundup on everything. And, you know, when Roundup was not $3 an acre, it was more expensive. People were going out there with a pint of Roundup. And we have created this monster. How it got to my house, it was in seed. Uh, it was in seed. I don't know what seed it was, but it was in, it started out in a corner of a field. But uh, you really got to jump on this thing and you can't, you can't get, a let it get ahead of you. So we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. So here's our normal rotations. On most of my land, this is what we try to do. We, plant, we try to plant corn, and then we'll plant a cover crop. You know, we'll just sling it out in the corn stalks. Then we'll come back with full season beans. And I like to plant wheat after beans because it's, it's easy. It's not as, not as much trouble. And then we'll plant double crop soybeans, and then we'll plant a cover crop, which is going to be late. You know, uh, we planted actually in December this year, just cereal rye. And then we have corn, wheat, and beans. And we do that because to make my wheat acres run out, I have land that wheat doesn't do good on. It's too low. It's too wet in the wintertime. It just doesn't doesn't do good so we don't plant it so we'll end up planting a few acres of corn uh wheat in corn stalks every year and then we this land that doesn't grow good good beans or good wheat we we plant corn cover crop soybeans corn and then we plant corn cover crop corn and the reason we plant continuous corn is because of that now, y'all folks out here in the Midwest, y'all plant 80s and 40s and quarters. That's my five. You know, and I got some ones. And you're saying, son, why are you planting that? Because that's actually the best land I farm. 
you'll make 200 bushel corn in there. Now the deer's going to eat around the outside and, and you're going to lose that. But in the middle, it's good. And uh, I don't have any. You have to drive down through the woods. No place to take the bean head off unless you drive in the middle of your five. And then you got to drive out there and put your head on. So I just plant it in corn because I can get my six row corn head down there. So anyhow, this is our corn. Now, all these pictures look funny because I had to stretch them out to, I've never done a PowerPoint before either, but you have to stretch them out to make them fit. And anyhow, this was in 2013. That's the best corn crop ever grown on our farm. Uh, that is conventional corn. Uh, it was not post-sprayed. It was burned down and planted and that and with the pre and that's it. So that was that was that was some pretty good corn. So we don't live in Iowa. We don't live in Missouri. We don't have all that much good land. This is my my family's farm. And this is my 10-year insurance average. So you know what? 154, 150, 147, 42. Up until this year, the 2007 was the worst year. So, anyhow, then we got 139, 125, 106, 93, 102, 166. So, the question is, does Jimmy Howard not know how to farm 60% of the time? No. If you were ever here and you heard uh, Dr. Belo, is it Fred Belo? He said, Weather is the number one thing that controls corn, and we just fight weather. So we got 124 average, and that's kind of the way the world is. I talked to my crop insurance agent, and he says, my yields are pretty good. I'd swap your, my yields for yours. I said, okay, well, if you think so, I wish, wish we could do better. And they are getting better. I didn't have any corn on this farm in 14, but last year, we averaged 141 bushels on the entire crop, and it was not our good year. So I think some of the things that we've learned and are trying are, are making a difference. But basically, I got to figure out how to make make money on 124 bushel corn. Uh, we got a couple advantages that North Carolina is a corn deficient state. Uh, right now, the ba and don't y'all move down there because ain't no land. <laughs> But right now, the basis on corn is a dollar and a nickel. And I told that to somebody from Iowa. He said, minus? I said, no, plus. So, you know, as long as the railroads charge what they charge and it costs the most to get the Midwest corn down there, we, we, got, a, we got a pretty good corn market. So, yeah, so that's basically what we got to do. As uh, we plant corn... You know, I, I shoot for 150 bushels of planned corn. That's kind of what my goal is. If I hit that, I'm pseudo happy. I hope that we have our environment in a situation that when we get to the 150, those good years that we can excel on up and, and move on up and get more. Our little creek bottoms will shoot for 200. That's kind of our average. I tried to shoot for 300. You know, all these people are getting these big 300 bushel averages. Uh, I only know of two 300 bushel yields in the state of North Carolina. Uh, Brian's dad and Brian Moore, wherever he is, he might have left already. But he, uh, they had 297 one year and uh, Spurgeon Foster, he had 306. I think that's the state record as it is now. So we're trying to figure it out. All right, my planter, pretty much it's a Kenzie. And it's a Kenzie with finger pickups. I used to run coulters on it for no other reason than that I just had coulters. And uh, I came up here and we talked to Phil Needham and, you know, I was whining. I didn't want to take my coulters off. And he said, you know, that because I got the Kinsey row cleaners and the unit mounted coulters. And he said, well, just take the disc off and put the hub back on. So Branson took the initiative and he took the disc off and just put the hub back on. And, uh, hey, that's a good deal. Best corn stand we ever had. Take that out. So we run the Kinsey float and row cleaners. We run Keaton's. And in our part of the world, cast iron closing wheels work good. They just do. 
You can't, everybody tried a lot of things with cast iron closed wheels about as good as you don't do. I run them staggered. I run, you know, they got two bolts. I put one ahead of the other. The theory is you're kind of going to uh, move the dirt one side and the other. My old planter, which was a John Deere, uh, I had to reduce the inner diameter gauge wheels on it. And that works good in our soil. It really does. And uh, we wore out the tires enough that that we ordered a set of reduced inner diameters and this winter when we rebuild we're going to put them on so we're pretty happy with that when we look for corn 113 to 120 days that's kind of the wheelhouse for our corn production i mean that's that's what works best the first thing i look for is drought rating i pick the variety with the highest drought rating that's the highest yielding and that has ear flex because those good years, the years that we have an opportunity to make more corn, you know, I want that ear to be able to flex. I don't want a fixed ear hybrid that's only going to do what it's going to do. So we, that's what we shoot for. Uh, we plant conventional varieties everywhere we can. Um, and, I, and I don't do that because we don't have a market for non-GMO corn because all ours goes to chicken feed or horse feed, uh, swine feed or dairy feed but uh, there's not a premium but I do it because I can buy the same genetics like $80 a bag less and in our rotation when we have corn you know every third year we don't have to have we don't have a lot of problems we planted traded varieties everywhere we have to the continuous corn bottoms we plant <clears throat> the, the you know we get everything rootworm beet everything uh, high rate poncho everything because it's continuous corn and, and and we're trying to avoid any problems down there our normal fertility program we soil sample we soil sample every year before corn and we pull the soil samples in february and this is another thing that I learned at the no-till conference. If you want to see your soils at the best, pull them, pull them in February because the residues had an opportunity to, or in the spring because the opportunities, uh, the residues broke down over the winter and released a lot of those nutrients and they're back in the soil. If you want to see it at your worst, do it in the fall when everything's tied up in the residue. So I want to see it at its best. So we pull it in February. And then we pretty much... We do what my fertilizer guy calls Jimmy GPS. I have had one time a guy come out and, and grid sample our uh, farm, but uh, I don't think he did a good job. I don't think it was representative at all. And uh, Joe Nestor came up here and he was talking about his clients that they do zone tillage. Well, you know, we farmed, I've been on most of this land all my life. So you know where the good spots are, you know where the bad spots are. And I've kind of got landmarks, and it's go out this terrace to here. This is one soil sample, and from here to that big oak tree, that's another soil sample. And, you know, we kind of go that way and, and, and take our own samples, and we do that every year before corn, and then we kind of follow it through. <coughs> we, If we put down any P and K, we'll uh, always include some nitrogen with it. Uh, we burn down with liquid nitrogen as a carrier and we buy 32% because it doesn't get cold enough to salt out. We put down 50 pounds of liquid nitrogen, 15 gallons an acre, two by zero with the planter and then we come back and side dress with another 50 pounds. Now I started that since Branson got out of college and you know it's hard being a dad. I don't know if any of y'all have, but you know I was young and, and, and I don't want to discourage Branson. I want to encourage him. I want him to to have ideas and try things, but normally I put out about 130 pounds of nitrogen total, but he's wanted to push it up a little higher and, and we're side dressing now and uh, we're doing that. And I, and I think it's okay. Uh, maybe we can trim back on our nitrogen rates. We burn down <clears throat> and pre-emerge post planting. Branson usually plants and I'll come in there and spray. We use Power Max, 32 ounces of Power Max. We use four ounces of Dicam. We use three pints of Atrazine and a half an ounce of Basis or Lead Off. It's the same stuff, you just have to use more Lead Off. So uh, we get four modes of action 
in that deal. Everybody says, oh, that won't work. If you'll look in your book, Monsanto in North Carolina will support Roundup up to 30 gallons of liquid nitrogen. And it may fail this year, but it's never failed yet. So sometimes you need to go away for a week before you go back and look, but that, that's, the, that's the deal. If we, and we don't post a lot of corn, but if we do, you know, we use uh, the regular rate of Power Max, 22, 22 ounces, and we, we're allowed to put two quarts of liquid uh, of atrazine, so we always save a pint if we're gonna post uh, conventional corn, we'll use Steadfast Q and a pint, of, a pint of atrazine. I've got the fancy names written down up here for you Canadian guys that don't, that's not your trade name, but uh, anyhow. Now what is that doing up there? Well, that Branson? that's Branson. <laughs> that's what's left of him. <laughs> so here we are. It's getting ready time to plant corn. Branson just graduated from North Carolina State. He was a member of Alfgambaro Agricultural Fraternity. He'd, somebody would give him a motorcycle in a box. No lie, it was a motorcycle in a box. And uh, it was a motorcycle that wasn't even supposed to be in the United States. So he went to putting this thing together. He's a very talented mechanic. And he witch doctored this thing. He had Arctic cat pistons. He, he fabricated a cooling lines out of copper tubing and you know this thing but it was scary fast i mean back in the day i used to drag race and that thing it do it now so he he goes down to down to the frat house after he graduated his girlfriend was still down at state he's got the motorcycle with him okay my wife and i are at home after church we're eating our lovely dinner we're gonna take our sunday afternoon nap get a phone well daddy i'm i'm hurt i'm gonna have to go to the doctor I said, oh, Lord, what'd you do? He said, well, I fell off my motorcycle. Okay. So we, we finished dinner, and we, we make it to China Grove, which is about 15 minutes. Uh, they may have to do surgery. Okay. We get a little further down the road, and, and the closer we get to Raleigh, the worse this deal's getting. <laughs> so anyhow, we get down there, and, and that's supposed to be straight. And here it is, you know, he's, he's going to plant the corn because i got a job, you know. And I've been working at night and all this crap, so he's supposed to. And, and we had a dry fertilizer on our planter at that time. And our program at that time is we'd go to our co-op and we'd get 50% DAP and 50% ammonium sulfate. And we'd put it out there where we got about 30 pounds of DAP and 30 pounds of nitrogen and some sulfur and you know we thought we were doing good so here this boy is all geeked up you know his fat daddy's mad he's glad he's not hurt but he's mad anyhow so he comes home how am i going to get all this stuff done i mean i can't go get fertilizer i can't you know because it's you know it's a while you got to, so i call up the guys at southern states and say you come spread this stuff and they said well we always got to rescue the Howard boys during corn planting because two years before that, I cut my finger off. So, you know, so they come down there and they spread, spread all my fertilizer, all my starter out, you know, and it ended up being the best crop we ever had. All right, so what we did then is I was concerned about our low CEC and our nitrogen and the way we were putting it out. So we started side dressing nitrogen Put a little cheap system on there. We just got a little electric pump. Branson's got it set up where it drip, uh, when you set the planter down, it starts pumping. When you pick it up, it quits. Uh, we got that little, what was that, a J, JNS? Any, huh? L and D. L and D. Anyhow, that's a good little thing. We just put, put it on there. We dribble it out beside the row. Works good. There's, we planted. This is 15 inch rye here. You know, we're planting in between just by accident, but that, that week works pretty good. And, uh, you know, we like that. That's working. Okay, we plant green. We don't plant, because we use nitrogen as a, as a uh, carrier. I don't like to drive my tractor and planter through the nitrogen. So we plant through it green, then we come back and spray it. And, you know, about a week later, that's what it looks like. And... Uh, it, it comes along, it does good. You just have to have some faith that you, it's going to work. 
Uh, okay, when we plant soybeans, there's Branson picking beans. Those were good beans that year. Normally, and, and that's the wrong slide, my yield goal is as much as we can make. But we're sort of kind of happy at 50 bushels. If we average 50 bushels for the whole crop, full season beans, we think they're pretty decent. Double crop beans, uh, we're, at, we're at 40 bushels an acre. Plant populations, 110s, we bump it up to 140. Some people go higher, but that's one bag of seed, and that's kind of all I want to plant. Uh, we only plant group fives. Um, Fours have higher yield potential in our area, but with the way we work, fours are not forgiving. They're ready, and you got to go get them, or they'll fall out on the ground, and bad things happen. And I just fives work good, so that's what we do. We plant a late group five, five nine, uh, for uh, you know, on our double crops to give it the maximum amount of time. That's about as long as we can go, and hopefully get them matured for the frost. Okay, use the Kinsey with the row splitters. Put the cultures back on. Just because I got brand new cultures, I got to wear them out. You know, uh, we run the row cleaners when on the double crop to move the straw out of the way. We take them off when we're planting uh, planting early beans. And you know, if we get in a bind, we we plant with our 750 John Deere. Uh, I don't know if you're, that, that's another strange thing. So I'm walking out across the field, and there's a piece of tin, which made me mad. And I lean down there to pick it up, and that's a row of soybeans. And right there, and the, 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 the planter cut that thing in two. And it was there in the fall, because right there are the marks where the drill, when we were drilling the cover crop, went over there. So I really think the great thing about a planting versus drilling you know, you get more plants in a row and they look pretty faster is one thing, but you get a lot more penetration, which helps sometimes. Uh, we fertilize our full season beans by our soil test. Our double crop beans, we, we put it before the wheat. Uh, we burn down our cover crop rye when it starts to bloom because we don't want to become a weed. So we go in there and we start starting to bloom. And if you get a little bit late, you, you better take an air tank with you because you're going to fix them to stop up a radiator. So we do that. Then we come back after we plant, and we usually use, uh, we use a pre-emergent herbicide. And post, we'll use PowerMax or in Prefix or Flexstar or, or something else, depending on what we got. But we usually always put something in there. Uh, when we burn down for double crop beans. We used to never even burn down back in the good old days. But by this time, uh, you know, it's the middle of June and the Palmer amaranth is starting to grow and you can go in there with Paraquat, uh, which is a quart of generic, is like three quarts of, of um, the regular Paraquat. I can't think of the name of it. And then we come back post with that. If we got a good crop going, we'll come back in there and spray a fungicide on it. Uh, I, I one reason, you know, just because we want to protect that yield, and if if you got a good crop going, you know, it's big and tall, and and there's not much airflow. We only use insecticide. One, I'm 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 concerned about the beneficials. I don't want to do anything to hurt them. The other reason is I'm allergic to it. If you get me around some some of these synthetic pyrethroids, I break out. And it's and I just don't do it. That's our cover crop right there. We're fixing the plant into it. He's Branson's killing it. You see, we only plant about 40 pounds to the acre, so it's kind of thin. It's tall, but it's thin. That's the reason we don't run row cleaners in the double crop and the in in the cover crop because I don't know. In North Carolina, we have these things called come aparts, and you'll have one of those. That, usually involves snot flying and cussing and wrench throwing. So <laughs> that's us planting into it. You know, you can kind of see where we're at. Uh, there's coming up. We, we really like really like that. All these pictures, a lot of these pictures are from, from 14 because you didn't want to see what went on this year. That's our beans. Uh, double crop. There's full season beans planted. You can see the rye here. That is a shovel. So our beans get tall. Uh, I think 
you know, they're a handful to combine, especially when you put a fungicide on them. You got to run all that vine through there. You know, my old gleaner's got 210 horsepower, and there's times I've got 209.9, praying that the, it gets out of the rotor for it and chokes it down. So anyhow, there's our double crop beans. You know, the row cleaner just kind of kicks the straw out of the way, and we get a good stand there. There's it coming up. There's that's double crop beans when we have rain and, and kind of they kind of look okay. Now I put this slide in here. These aren't my beans. I'll rent this farm now, but this is the Harris Brothers farm. And uh, that is a bean, it's an Asgrow bean, it's an indeterminate number five. And it was new that year, and Asgro guy came out there and said he wanted them to enter it in the state contest. And they were, you know, they're in their 70s, and they're, oh, what are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Where are we going to finish? I said, let me handle the test block. I'll do all the combine, and I know where it's at. This field here, Gene Harris lives here. His mother used to live across there, and she didn't want big, tall stuff, so she couldn't be trapped in. She wanted to see. So that field was in alfalfa. It'd be in alfalfa, and when the alfalfa would play out, they'd plant corn in it, then they'd plant small grain, then they'd beat it to death all summer, then they'd plant alfalfa back in it. The last time it was planted in no uh, uh, alfalfa, I'd converted them to no-till, and it was no-till alfalfa, and then we went to row cropping it. Now, 90.9 beans, highest yield in the state. I think that's like the third highest yield that's ever been interested entered in the contest. And the only reason I put that up there is the farm average was like 60 bushels. The reason these are 90 bushels, they received nothing different. They were just blessed to be put in that field. So, you know, if you have the soil and everything to allow a plant to express its full potential, you know, uh, it, it can do it. It can do it. All right, here's my wheat. Now I'm gonna give Terry Ross and, and Ken Nixon credit because my yield, wheat yields are better since I've been coming to the no-till conference and they, they've been helping me. Uh, not that I was doing stuff that was too bad wrong. I, most of it, I just wasn't doing it at the right time. You know, we shoot for 100 bushels an acre. And by this time, our soil sample is two years old. We'll come in there with 9, 23, 30, and that's roughly crop removal for 40 bushel beans and uh, 100 bushel wheat. That's maybe stretching a little bit. You know, we'll come in there and uh, we'll put a shot of nitrogen with sugar at green up with our weed control with flat fans, which is supposed to be bad. But I don't know what sugar does, but it won't burn the plant. If you double up on if you put 100, 100 units, but the sugar will protect the plant and it saves us a, a trip. And we come back in there generally with another 50 pounds, uh, you know, when the stem starts to elongate because we have a lot of problems with, with lodging. You know, we plant a million and a half seeds. Uh, we burn down with Powermax. We plant late because of the Johnson grass, uh, not Johnson, ryegrass. We try to let the ryegrass germinate. Then we can go in there, and, and most time we don't have to go back and uh, spray it down. We come back post with Harmony and green up. Uh, we, about a week or so after our second nitrogen shot, we'll, we'll come in with a fungicide and then we'll spray our head spray. At, I put Feeks 510 because that's what Phil Needham's book says. I just look at it and when it looks about like that, I go out there and spray. And uh, anyhow, uh, we, our John Deere planter, it's, we got the reduced center diameter tires. We use the Benelli Furman strips, V8 closing wheels. We got the updated the cast iron wheels to the 1790 style, and uh, we have 1,500 pounds of wheat, uh, weight permanently mounted on Thank you to Jim Howard for sharing his no-till system and his experiences with the practice in his part of the country. If you enjoyed today's episode and would like to learn about no-till and how it's impacted other farmers' lives, please visit notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream to learn more about the coffee table book we're producing this spring. As I mentioned before, From Maverick to Mainstream, A History of No-Till Farming will include over 200 pages of personal stories, 
photos and the individuals and equipment that have influenced the practice. Again, the link is notillfarmer.com slash maverick to mainstream. I'd also like to recognize and thank our sponsor, Copperhead Ag, once again for helping make this No-Till Farmer podcast series possible. I look forward to your feedback on today's episode, so feel free to drop me an email at lbarrera at lessetermedia.com or give me a call at 262-777-2404. And if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Store to get an alert when future episodes are released. You can also keep up on the latest no-till farming news by registering online for our No-Till Insider and Dryland No-Tiller e-newsletters. And be sure to follow us on Twitter at No-Till Farmer with Farmer spelled F-A-R-M-R and on our No-Till Farmer Facebook page. For Jim Howard, Copperhead Ag, and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Lara Barrera. Thanks for listening. Thank you.